From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, inside Amazon's new sustainable product line, ING America's CEO on where climate leadership meets the loan book, the CEO of We Mean Business on how inflation and supply chain issues are affecting the clean energy transition, and what happens when a war in Europe meets the clean energy revolution. We're fighting the good fight this week on 350. It's March 4th, 2022, the only date on the calendar that's a complete sentence. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, getting oh so ready for spring is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you? How was your vacation? I'm good, but did you know that about March 4th? It's the only date that's a complete sentence. March 4th. I get it. I, it took me a moment. It took me a moment. I was like, what is the date again? <laughs> yeah. I was, I was, my, my brain kind of synapsed on me. And yeah. the, the synapses weren't quite there. Yeah, but, no, the, uh, yes. the audience can't see your March face. March 4th. But I, but I can see your face. And I knew you quite didn't get it. So I needed to explain it. But uh, <laughs> I digress. And uh, um, How yeah. do you spell fourth, though? Uh-huh. Uh, well, of course, it's an audio <laughs> joke, not a visual joke. Point taken, Ms. <sighs> editor. Um, okay. Am I happy you're back from vacation or what? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> uh, no, it was a great week. I uh, took a week off after Green Biz 22, which, uh, by the way, can we just celebrate for a second? What a glorious week mm. that was. Uh, really, mm-hmm. really fun. And uh, yeah, went off to Mexico uh, to chill and uh, and enjoy and just be somewhere different. And um I'm back and uh, it was great and I'm happy to be back and uh, and and you're headed somewhere next week so we're kind of ships in the night what's going on yeah we are I'm uh, going diving for the first time in like two and a half years which is a yeah. little intimidating actually to uh, going to Roatan which is off Honduras it's a island known for lots of uh, different types of diving um, the Bay Islands also get lots of big stuff, but we're we're going to be mostly focusing on on the small. I'm okay with that. Small things. Small. And how things. far down do you dive? What uh, I, I assume you're PADI certified and all that, but uh, how? how yeah, you-, you know, I <laughs> people always ask me that. I I think I spend a lot of my time in the seventy to fifty foot range mm-hmm. um, or or lower. I mean, frankly, I would rather stay down longer and be more shallow and, and there's plenty of r- wonderful things to see in the the 30 the 30 foot zone down a reef so I I I'm um you know I don't know how I have to look at my dive my log books I was I was sort of looking at all my stuff the other day going wow do I remember how to use this <laughs> so anyway um but yeah sounds great but you know what let's dive into the weekend review I'm going to start this week with a piece I wrote about a new private label for sustainable goods that was launched on Tuesday by Amazon. Uh, Amazon Aware. Uh, it's a 
if you've seen Amazon Essentials, that's a product line. I know some of the cable, computer cables and things I bought or I buy from time to time are Amazon Essentials branded. It's a, uh, it's a pretty good quality and pretty affordable line. And now they've launched something that's a private label brand of products that it's deemed to be sustainable, at least from an environmental perspective. And uh, it modest, just about 50 products uh, in the categories of household uh, goods and beauty products and some apparel. Um, it's a baby toe in the water, but an interesting place to start. What did you think of this, Heather? So I had a couple thoughts. One is I love the focus on the essential items. So things like toilet paper and t-shirts and Products that seem far more accessible than some of the other sustainable brands that I've seen out there, right? They tend to, a lot of these, these things that I see marketed as such tend to be very high-end products, luxury goods. And so I love that focus on the everyday consumer. I love that part of it. The thing I don't love as much is I wonder about the smaller companies that could be pushed out because of this. What if smaller brands that are doing this not on the Amazon platform? I know that the Climate Pledge Friendly program is focusing on you know other organizations and trying to help build uh, visibility for those sorts of things. But I I don't know. I just I always worry about Amazon <laughs> getting into things because they're so huge. Um, you know, do you do they squash others? Um, or maybe they should buy, maybe they'll go out and buy others. I don't know where they're getting these things from, but they're, they're private label. But anyway, that's my thought. Those are my two thoughts. Yeah. No, it's always a, always a green glass half full. Um, but there's also an argument to be made that the glass isn't big enough and that Amazon can play a role in, in expanding the size of the glass. Because uh, they are, to, to your earlier point, they, they do have um, climate pledge friendly, where they've got a whole bunch of different, you know, Burt's Bees and Honest Company and lots of much smaller, Mrs. Myers and Taylors of Harrogate and, you know, a bunch of brands that that are, you know, in some cases really small, some, sometimes they're more mid-sized brands that are available on their climate pledge friendly platform. And, and Aware was modeled after that, they using the same 33, I think it is, uh, independent certification uh, companies or, or nonprofits that they work with who are certifying that these uh, products meet at least uh, one of the uh, standards set by one of these organizations uh, enough to wear that label, that particular label. Um, and, and so, you know, my question is, and it's maybe it's a slightly more optimistic question than the one you're asking. You're asking if they're going to are they going to compete and push some of the smaller players aside? Maybe they're creating a market here that it doesn't yet exist at a more mainstream market than we've seen so far. I mean, you know, I think they'll be the first to tell you that this is an experiment and it's a small one to start. And I spoke with uh, Cyrus Wadia, who's the, who who led and, and really conceived of this project uh, at Amazon, and I've known. Cyrus for a long time back when he was, uh, I think, came out of the White House uh, uh, Office of Science and Technology to uh, work at at Nike, um, and uh, you know he's very very thoughtful, and you can tell that this is there's a certain amount of humility here in terms of how they've taken this on and how they're you know sort of classic tech company you know uh, rapid innovation, rapid uh, refinement of the model as they go along and learn, um, and that's. Partly what he told me, this is a learning lab. It's a platform for seeing what works and what doesn't. And, you know, how do you do that in an in a, in a arena that where there's no real definition of sustainability, except for 
you know, dozens of different certifications, how do you create something that is thoughtful, not greenwash, um, and uh, and ideally grows the market? But you're right. You know, this could push some aside. I mean, this is a prop. This is one of the challenges with Amazon uh, writ large, and uh, you know, the company that you either love or at least like or totally dislike or even hate. I mean, there's <laughs> there's opinions all over the map here on, on that, that particular company. So how you'll view this will depend on what you think of Amazon yeah. in the first place. There's a, one other thing I think that we should watch for on this as well. And you, you allude to it in the story and it's at the, that's the packaging, right? So um, I think you said that one of the brands uh, on, the, on the beauty side, only one of them is a refillable, um, you know, how, how are they going to model good behavior on that front as well? I mean, as we know, the packaging proposition of e-commerce items is a big deal as far as like getting them to the home and what part of the footprint is that? So that does that, does that all get allocated in this or accounted for? I'm not sure. Um, you know, it seems, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, I, I think, I think in gen two, I mean, there, it, like you said, there's only one product that has a refill and it's basically the same packaging as the original, except without the pump. So you've got just an aluminum cap instead of the, the bigger thing with the pump. So it's not really a refill in that sense, in the sense of, uh, can you send your empties back and get a new one? The model that loop, uh, which we've talked about many times on this program and written about on greenbiz.com. Uh, has has pioneered, and uh, you know, you think about you know all the Amazon trucks traversing your neighborhood and every neighborhood. They're well suited to uh, pick up the empties as they drop off the new ones. So that to me would be a great step forward, and they'd put them directly in competition with uh, Tom Zaki's company Loop and TerraCycle, and and that would be potentially interesting to uh, see more competition in the refillable uh, household goods and personal care products space um, and foods as well. So I think there's a, there's a lot of potential here. And I, I think what the, you're seeing here is is version 1.0. And uh, I'll look forward to 2, 3, 4, and versions 5.0 as, as they move forward. Uh, we'll see where this goes. Okay. So I'll take us to our next story. How about that? <laughs> uh, I think that's okay. great. So I appreciated <laughs> the interview that uh, our Finn, our green fin analyst, uh, Grant Harrison, did with Gerald Walker, the CEO for ING Americas. Um, it's a ING for those I'm hoping that everyone knows who they are, but they're one of Europe's largest banks, total assets of around 1.2 trillion. And I am, I've been intrigued by the, the com company for a while for two reasons. One is they were, um, I think, the first. Uh, or at least they say they're the first to link financing to a company's sustainability performance. So they're a pioneer of the sustainability bonds, sustainability finance uh, um, instruments that we've seen uh, emerge for corporations over the past five years. And I also have been watching some of the investments they've made in the circular economy, right? So they've, they've got some uh, being headquartered out of the Netherlands, they they have a, an appreciation for um, things circular, and there's a lot of activity in Europe you know, going on in that. So this particular interview focuses on the um, America's operations, but I, I I just felt like it it, it was a good sort of um, synopsis of their approach. You know, for example, the Terra approach, which is the way that the bank looks at their portfolio and 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 works with clients to help understand 
uh, and to help them change your strategy with respect to um, the things that they're doing. So they, they work on power generation, the companies in the power generation sector, automotive sector, and they're really focusing in on their, their portfolio and what they're doing um, for uh, companies in those space. As we know, there's a big debate going on right now between banks that say they are funding the climate revolution, climate tech, climate clean energy initiatives, green, green finance initiatives for adaptation and so forth. But we all know that they still have very large portfolios in in uh, sectors that are very much tied to the, I don't know, I don't know if you call it the high fossil fuel economy. I don't know what we call the old, but or the current. Um, but uh, so the banks have to balance this. And ING is, is uh, I think, been pretty aggressive about, you know, pushing the envelope on the on the the sustainable finance side and, and trying to to move more quickly on the uh, the stuff that could be a drag as they move forward. What was uh, I know I know you had a hand in editing this one. What jumped out from for you in this particular interview? Yeah, well, what what's first of all, I'd go with petro economy for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it 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 leaves coal out, but mm. uh, you know, most so much of this is is petroleum based. Mm-hmm. It's our world these mm-hmm. days. Um, I. What what struck me about this, Heather, is that what what they're doing, what ING is doing, is is sort of table stakes to a large extent these days for large uh, global banks. Um, but they've been doing it longer than almost anybody, and and so they have the experience curve that some other banks are just now dipping into, and, and they're showing the way, in effect, in that regard of where to go next. And yes, this Terra approach, and it's actually a brand T E R R A capital A approach. Um, it, which is uh, is uh, basically a methodology they have where they're trying to, they call it bringing transparency to sustainability, including the steps and intermediate targets they're setting for themselves on their path to, to net zero and how they view uh, the, the sectors responsible for the, the most uh, greenhouse gases, the power, of course, and, and fossil fuel extraction and automotive shipping, aviation, steel cement, uh, the hard to abate sectors, but also residential mortgages and commercial real estate. And and th- they've been using this approach as they engage their customers. And they say, uh, he says in this interview, Mr. Walker, that uh, they plan to roll the Terra approach across all sectors in their, in their loan book by the end of this year. So that seems to be where banks need to be going. And, and so what was really uh, interesting about this, uh, and and uh, again, I, I admire that, uh, that that Grant Harrison pulled the best, uh, I think, out of Mr. Walker in this uh, in this interview, is to look at where they've come, but actually where they're going and what's next. And I think this is a a, a great signal of where the banking industry needs to be going. Um, so that's that's my take on that. But can we go to the third story here because I think I'm going to jump into this. Uh, this idea of small fleets that Mike DeSocio uh, wrote about this week. I think that's really interesting, um, you know, because we talk about the big companies who are buying, you know, hundreds or thousands of hundreds of thousands in one case of Tesla's, at least they're claiming to be, and other vehicles, uh, electric vehicles, including trucks and 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 light light trucks and certainly and 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 vans. But what about the smaller ones? And I think that was this interesting piece that 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 Mike wrote about this week for the Mobility Weekly newsletter um, with a company, an old friend of mine, Sunil Paul, has uh, called... Um, Bring Free EV. There it is. Thank you. Spring Free EV, uh, which is uh, helping smaller fleets 
Electrify. I thought that was a pretty innovative partnership, uh, but I know you you've been looking at this a lot too, Heather. What did you think? I, first of all, I, this is my if I have to say like my my number one interest this year is on how we enable smaller companies to participate in the clean economy, and how you give them the tools and technologies and the financing to do this. And this is a perfect example of that because. What, what they're doing is basically buying up um, electric vehicles, including used ones, right? So ones that have been out there already. That So they're creating a market for used EVs, which is, I think, a big deal. But, but the focus for this particular service is smaller companies. So it could be a fleet operator with like five to 10 vehicles. You don't, maybe you don't have the credit to buy those EVs, but you could subscribe to them, right? You could you could do a leasing finance model where, where you could get access to them. Um, they're uh, working, the other thing I think that's notable with, with this particular company is that they're working with Cox uh, Automotive. Um, they, they, they struck a partnership with them in January and that's where they're gonna be getting the used EVs from. So big, big player and partner to help do that. So I just I, I just love this model. I, I don't really know C. Neil's background. So I think that um, I love that that he's a repeat entrepreneur. So he's he's seen this happen. You know, he's seen this this before. He knows the, the things to avoid and, and look out for. And so I think love that idea. Um, so it's like kind of like a ride sharing slash leasing slash used car market slash, you know, EV kind of uh, play. So I, I think it's a great, innovative approach. Yeah. And, and Sunil does have this uh, background. I think it's worth mentioning here because he started back in the uh, early mid 90s with as a product manager at America Online AOL. And, and, and along the way, he founded Brightmail, which was uh, which which uh, I think he sold uh, big time. I know he sold big time. He was acquired by Symantec for hundreds of millions back in the early 2000s and um, and then started in the venture capital space and and uh, invested in companies like LinkedIn and and Z- and, and, and several others. And, and then this is not his first mobility venture, too. So he had a sidecar, which was a, a peer-to-peer rideshare thing. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, but, um, but I think it, you know, like a lot of those things, you learn a lot and move on and he has. And so I think this is a, as you say, a really interesting and important, um, way to go is, is bringing this, you know, beyond the big well-heeled players, the big companies, uh, that can afford, you know, billion dollar fleets or certainly hundreds of millions of dollars investment in their fleets to the smaller companies. We need to do that. And that's how we drive change. Well, it's been a, another week, but quite a week. Yeah, lots going on in the world. We have the, obviously the Russian invasion of U- Ukraine. We have the IPCC report. Uh, and we have James Murray, editor-in-chief of uh, Business Green in the UK, here to talk about not only those two things, but how they connect. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Well, <laughs> I'm doing okay. The world, not so much. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think it's it's interesting. The IPCC report came out devastating news once again. Uh, we have this uh, just tragedy unfolding as we speak uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, but you see there's a, a connection there. Uh, tell us how you uh, see those connected. 
Yeah, so I um, I wrote a piece earlier this week on the back of the IPCC report. Um, actually, actually, look, kind of riffing on "Don't Look Up" as well, the film which I finally got round to watching, and and how actually maybe climate change is a bit like a comet. Maybe the people who criticised that film got it wrong, and it really is potentially that disastrous, which is kind of what the IPCC report sketched out um you know i mean nothing new for anyone who's followed this closely but absolutely terrifying the scale of the impacts um and the thing for me with the ipcc report has always been it, it's not the first order impacts that are really terrifying although bad as they are for the people impacted by them it's the second order impacts that flow from that the, the migration the conflict and the the geopolitical tensions that would arise out of a world faced with those those kind of climate impacts that the IPCC report spoke about. And, you know, we, when you get, I mean, everyone just sort of, you see the headlines of these disastrous headlines, when you actually unpack the detail of just like food security plummeting and, you know, the extreme weather impacts making cities unviable or heat waves making cities unviable, it's, it's absolutely terrifying when you look at the implications that flow from that. Um, but anyway, the big one is just, is the level of geopolitical instability that we'll see. And obviously we are now, absolutely seeing that we are seeing a land war in europe something that i think everyone thought was behind us um and 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 that is kind of energy is a factor in there i mean obviously there's lots of factors in the mix there's there's sort of the authoritarianism and nativism of putin and many other many other things that historians will pick over but a big one is just this energy reliance that europe has on russia um that has allowed Russia to sort of build up its financial position, build up its military position, and, and and essentially take these successive gambles that have got more and more bold and more and more aggressive um, against the West, because it kind of assumes that there's not much Europe can do while it's reliant on Russian gas. Um, and and sorry, I'm going, I'm going around the houses a little bit, but but where that links to what we've seen on the climate front is, you know, the IPCC report this week was kind of completely overshadowed in the headlines by this crisis. But the response to the crisis that we're starting to see from European powers is the same as the response to the climate crisis that we need to see. And we've seen some very, very rapid moves, surprisingly fast moves, effectively declaring economic war on Russia. And a big part of that is countries laying the groundwork for saying we are not going to import Russian gas anymore. We are not going to import Russian oil and coal anymore. We are going to secure a, a degree of energy in, in, um, independence. And there's already talk about Europe getting itself into a position whereas we will, so that it will not need Russian gas next, next winter that sanctions can come down and effectively shut off this rogue state from its most powerful export market. Um, and to do that, you're seeing really interestingly, in many ways, you're seeing European leaders, the European Commission, you're seeing the UK talk about going faster on net zero, talking about how do we accelerate investment in renewable power capacity and energy efficiency measures um, to help enable that. So what about the private sector? I mean, that that would be a non-starter here in the States. Uh, the private sector is saying we need to move further, faster, at least uh, the vested interest in, in fossil fuels and, and some other sectors that rely heavily on them. Uh, how does the private sector line up with that in Europe? Again, it's it's absolutely fascinating to see. I mean, obviously, as always, the, the disclaimer there, the private sector is not a, a sort of homogenous whole. There's lots of different factors at play, lots of different interests at play. But broadly, I, there's been this very rapid recognition that we're at war. 
yes, it's an economic war. Yes, there's these very carefully worded and um, issues and steps being taken to ensure that NATO doesn't get pulled into this and things don't escalate, although Lord knows where it might end. But currently there is this sense that there's a sort of economic war against Russia. And as a result, businesses are taking quite substantial steps. So we've seen BP and Shell, the two biggest oil companies uh, in, in Europe, both immediately say, pretty much immediately say, they are offloading their Russian assets. They don't want anything more to do with them. Um, others are kind of freezing investment in Russia. We've seen all the banks shut down trade with Russia already, and there's more sanctions on the way. And within the energy, uh, within the sort of energy and the decarbonisation perspective, there's kind of two broad schools of thought that we're seeing. And I think there's going to be a really fierce battle over this. You're seeing a lot of businesses saying, we need to do more on energy efficiency and we need to do more on renewables. That's the most obvious step. They're cost competitive. And also the big economic impact for people on an everyday basis um, outside of uh, the war zone is energy prices are going to absolutely soar to a level beyond which we saw in the 70s. I mean, by some measures, this is already a bigger energy price crunch than, than which we saw in the 70s. So you're seeing a big you know, you're going to see a lot of broad support, I think, for these plans to accelerate development and accelerate energy efficiency measures on multiple fronts. The flip side to that that is slightly more worrying for the climate agenda is you're also seeing arguments saying we need to um, extract more of our domestic gas. So, you know, if we're not going to be importing Russian gas and we can't stop using gas altogether immediately, you know, you can't deploy 200 million heat pumps in every home in Europe overnight. Um there's going to be calls for uh, more exploitation of North Sea reserves, and we're starting to see calls for fracking, which has never really taken off in Europe or the UK. Uh, calls from some quarters for, for for that kind of very nascent industry to be revived and for us to allow to frack. Um, so you know, there's a kind of a there's there's a positive response here for the clean tech sector and potentially a negative one. But broadly speaking, the the politicians' rhetoric is much more around. The renewable side of things and the energy efficiency side of things as, as a recognition that that's the long-term route to end our dependence on Russian fossil fuels. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, you know, Going back to the IPCC report, I don't think we need to talk about the specifics of that, but in the wake of that, there was a piece earlier this week in the New York Times uh, about how a number of U.S. climate scientists are fed up with the inaction and ready to go on strike uh, some of the researchers are asking, you know, what difference do all of these reports make? Because nothing's changing, or at least certainly not changing at the scale, scope, and speed that's needed. And and we weren't just talking about uh, you changing in the U.S. It's really a global thing. Are, are you seeing the, the, a revolt of climate scientists over there? Um, I think, I mean, the level of frustration is absolutely off the charts, isn't it? And I think every time the IPCC launches a new report, um, and it doesn't trigger the the reaction that people want to see it builds. Um, I mean, I haven't seen people talking specifically about going on strike, but you know, we have seen scientists over here joining protest movements. Um, some that have been willing to sort of get themselves arrested to do so. Um, I mean, this this IPCC report, I think, was particularly unfortunate in its timing that, in that it just has been completely dominated um, out of the news cycle by the events that we're seeing in Europe uh, and and in Ukraine. But you do get a sense that the the sense of seriousness is building. And and uh, I think amongst sort of European governments, particularly, you know, COP26, in the wake of COP26, I think there is a broad recognition now that 
you know, that action has to follow at a, a bolder level than we've seen before. Um, it was interesting the IPCC report had a lot on climate resilience and, and how those measures deliver a return on investment. It had more on nature as well and how we need to expand um, sort of natural resilience and expand natural carbon sinks and the like. So if, if you're looking for some sort of positivity to take from what is, let's be honest, a pretty despairing moment, um, there is just the consensus now is stronger than it's ever been before on what the problem is and importantly, what we need to do to tackle it. You know, everyone's arguing about the precise detail, but the broad thrust of what's needed amongst virtually every government and every major business on the planet is accepted and is understood. Yeah. Well, along those lines, uh, before I let you go, you've got uh, an event coming up uh, focusing on net zero and and the solutions there. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you've got in the hopper. Yeah, so uh, later this month on, uh, when is it, March 29th, Tuesday, March 29th, we're holding a, a one of our, another one of our virtual summits. Uh, Net Zero Finance um, is the title. Um, and it's sort of a day-long event. It's available on demand as well for anyone in the US who, who doesn't want to get up ridiculously early to watch it on, U- on uh, UK Times, but um, available on demand and live. Um, and it's just looking at this Net Zero Finance movement. Um, we've got some fantastic speakers from kind of top banks, financial institutions, think tanks, regulators, government ministers, uh, all coming together to just talk about that we've seen this wave of net zero commitments from you know banks and asset managers that hold trillions and trillions of dollars of assets. How are they practically translating that into real strategies that will decarbonize their portfolios? Um, doing that through, you know, not just divestment, but also engagement and everything that flows from that. And, you know, it's one of the biggest levers in the world to drive change. It's early days, but it really is starting to gather momentum. We've seen that um, at COP26 and beyond. Um, so, yeah, we've got some fantastic lineup of speakers. It's free to sign up. So, uh, yeah, more the merrier. Please yeah. please join us. And you can check it out at uh, businessgreen.com. Uh, James Murray is the editor-in-chief of Business Green. And it's uh, always a pleasure to talk. We'll do that again next month. Thanks, James. Thanks, Joe. It's been a while since we checked in with the We Mean Business Coalition, a nonprofit collaborative focused on driving corporate and policy action to have global emissions by 2030 in line with the 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway outlined in the Paris Agreement. Joining me for a catch-up is Maria Mendy Luce, CEO of the coalition, which is based in Geneva. Hello, Maria. Hi, Heather. Nice to be with you again. Yeah, it's very good to catch up with you. I know you have quite a few things on your mind, but let's start with something you just wrote about, deforestation. Uh, Unfortunately, deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon hit a historic high in January. This comes just two months after the Glasgow leaders' declaration decrying this sort of nature loss. So what can corporations do to step up action on this? What's, what's, what do we need? Thank you, Heather, for bringing this important point. As you, as you know, the signing of the Glasgow leaders' declaration was a recognition of a scientific truth. Nature loss and climate change are inextricably linked and must be tackled together. So basically, we cannot have global emissions by 2030 without addressing nature loss and land degradation. So in the article you referred to, I talk about what companies should do um, to to take action on on reducing deforestation. So the the first one is is to cut emissions from nature loss in, in their value chains. 
So the science-based targets initiative, uh, you know, sets a, a direction of travel and asks companies to reduce the scope three value chain emissions. And there's new guidance that companies can follow on food, land, and agriculture emissions. So there's no excuse for companies to not set the target. The second thing that companies need to do is to advocate for trade policies to ban commodity-driven deforestation. So trade and development policies were a key component on the declaration, but will only succeed with private sector engagement. Laws are now under discussion in the US, in the UK, in Europe, and companies can put their vast experience and knowledge of tackling deforestation in supply chains by engaging in, in the different consultations that are happening. The third element is that we need to bring agriculture to the top of the climate agenda. Innovation in agriculture has been minimum compared to the exponential progress made in other sectors, such as energy or transportation. And companies can drive radical change in our food systems by buying low-carbon agricultural commodities, investing in R&D, bringing new low-carbon plant-based products to the market, or incentivizing farmers to lock more carbon into their soil. The fourth element is that companies should invest beyond value chains. Reversing nature loss will require a tripling of investment by 2030 with the private sector carrying a large share of the financial burden. And finally, companies should hold governments to account. They should call on the 141 signatories of the declaration to ensure that their national emission reduction plans are updated ahead of COP27 to include the ambition of reversing forest loss and land degradation by 2030. So basically take more action, both in your operations and supply chain, bring agriculture top to the agenda and hold the, and, and you know and engage with policymaker, make your voice heard, hold them to account to the promise they made in the declaration. You know, when you say you engage with policymakers, obviously Brazil is a very specific situation, but do you mean engage with policymakers in Brazil or do you mean get more active with your own government so that they can put pressure on Brazil. I'm just, I'm, or maybe it's both. It's both. It's both. Obviously, some those that are in Brazil, I know, I mean, many of them are engaging with the governments to progress on this agenda. And, and others in other countries should engage with their governments uh, to do so. So it's not only Brazil, there is also in Africa and Asia as well, uh, there's some, you know, Effort, but obviously, you know, we're thinking, and the article, you know, headline was around the Amazon, and it is true, yeah, that is a key country. Yeah, and, and just one other quick follow-up here. You mentioned innovation in agriculture. Are you talking about um, what? Well, actually, what are you talking about? You're talking about precision technologies, uh, regenerative ag. I mean, all of these things. Is is that what you mean by innovation? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So we, we have seen the enormous amount of funding that has gone uh, to, to invest in renewable energy, so electric vehicles. And we are miles away from, from those investments in agriculture. And uh, yeah, it is, it is all the, what you have mentioned. At the end of the day, yeah, it is agri regenerative agriculture. It, it, is, it is about 
new technologies and, and activities that farmers can do to reduce their emissions both in, in the operations and also in the, in the soil absorption of carbon. So let's talk energy. Uh, we've got inflation, we've got huge supply chain issues, all the prices are soaring, um, which we've been talking about could have a, a very chilling effect on the clean power transition. And now there's the conflict in the Ukraine. Um, what's your perspective on this? Well, let's, start, let's start with the beginning, because if we start with the, the Ukraine situation, then, then I, I think, yeah, it's... it's it's uh, horrible as, as we speak, right? Anyway, we'll, we'll address that later. So let's face it. Um, this is a fossil fuel crisis. And it is very important that we remember that. To avoid this uh, crisis in the future, we must accelerate the shift towards renewable energy. So a diversified system with energy storage, interconnectivity, and a strengthened electricity grid is the most resilient solution to price shocks. So, yeah, in light of, of the gas increase of prices on gas, obviously Europe and, and other countries need to invest more on renewables and on, on all the above, what I have mentioned, to reduce that dependency on, on gas. Of course, renewables cannot fix the situation right now, okay? But it is important that we know that in the future, this is the solution to the current crisis that we're facing both the gas crisis and to a certain extent, the Ukrainian crisis. And also it brings many more benefits such as uh, more jobs and, 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 and local economic development. On the other hand, there is like important advances on green hydrogen that will open new opportunities that will also accelerate the, the low carbon decarbonization of economies. So it is important you know, to move away you know, from fossil fuels to renewables, but to do that in, with a smart transition of the workers. And for example, in Scotland, it was quite interesting. Oil and gas supports around 100,000 jobs. And there was a just transition commission by the Scottish government that has announced uh, how they're going to support those workers as they transition from oil to other jobs, notably renewables, amongst others. Okay. It's not just the, the actual generation capacity, though. It's, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's, it's, the, it's the distribution mechanisms. It's how you get it there. So have we been investing enough in that, the grid in, in, and in pipelines for other things? Yeah, you perfectly know that no, no, we haven't, and uh, and that has been, uh, you know, the the thing is that there there is a lot of emphasis. Let's invest more renewables, but of course you need a grid that can sustain that that renewable growth. And um, instead of building more gas pipelines or gas storage, the countries should invest in strengthening the electricity grid and created electricity storage capabilities and and interconnections. Um, it is it is clear. I hope you know policymakers and governments learn something of the current uh, gas gas price, and uh, and look at solutions to the to the crisis and not at solutions that will exacerbate the the next crisis. So one final area 
that I want to ask you about. And, and this is this is it's a good and a bad thing, right? So climate change is receiving a lot more scrutiny in the mainstream media. That's great. Um, people around the world are more focused on this. That's great. Um, corporate commitments are being watched more closely than ever, and that's great. But <laughs> um, there's you know skepticism. So uh, you know there's many notes of, of greenwashing and claims of greenwashing. So how can corporations? strengthen their action and build more credibility at the same time? Yeah. I think scrutiny is, is really important and accountability in every aspect. And um, it is also important that, that those that are holding accountable business and, and others also understand the realities of the transition and have uh, expectations that are based on, on, on realistic evolution, uh, rather on an idealistic uh, uh, evolution. Right? And, but in any case, it is clear uh, for us at Women Business, uh, we, we know what, what companies need to do. The first one is that they absolutely need to go all in for 1.5, and they need to track progress. So we know that now there's more than 1,200 companies that have committed to set targets aligned with 1.5. And with the net zero standard launched by the SBTI initiative, uh, we have an independent and credible uh, way uh, to set uh, targets. The second thing, it is obviously that companies is not only about targets, it's take action. And it's obviously action in their own operations, but most importantly, actions across the value chains. And for that, collaboration is going to be key. SMEs, for example, and, and, and value chains are, are responsible between 50 and 95% of the emissions generated by large multinational companies. And many of these companies are figuring out how can they best work with their supply chains so that they can decarbonize. Obviously, for both the value chains and companies, the switch to renewable power is obvious for the reasons I mentioned before. And it has come very clearly at COP26 with, uh, we, when we are moving even closer to an expiry date on fossil fuels. On the other hand, in addition to investing in decarbonization, we are encouraging companies to invest in nature. We need to eliminate commodity-driven deforestation from the supply chains and support nature-based solutions beyond their, value, their supply chain. Both will bring multiple social and ecosystem benefits, as well as helping with the global goal of limiting global temperature to 1.5. Now, the last point is about um, one, is the coordination within companies between the sustainability departments, the development departments, the finance department, the procurement department. So climate change is not a sustainability department issue. It, it, it cuts across all the areas of business, and especially attention now to procurement, because the, the, the people in the procurement departments are going to be negotiating contracts and need to include the GHG element into those. And lastly, companies should ensure that all lobbying efforts support climate action. It doesn't work for companies to be committing to net zero, but not be speaking favorable about policies that will lead a country and a company towards net zero. And so, you know, we ask uh, companies to stand up, to persuade peers, 
and to support ambitious policies. I think if companies take ambitious, so we call it the four A's, ambition, action, advocacy, and accountability, they are clearly on the leading path on climate change. Maria, thank you for uh, catching up with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks a lot, Heather. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You just heard from Maria Mendiluthe, CEO of the We Mean Business Coalition. Before I let you go, a quick programming note. Next week on March 9th, a Wednesday, uh, I'm going to be hosting a, uh, a web webinar, webcast as we call them, on traceability and circularity, lessons from the leader. This is going to be, uh, uh, I think, a really interesting conversation on how do we track and trace materials, components, and finished products uh, from their uh, throughout their life cycle and into their second and subsequent lives. So I encourage you to tune into that. Uh, just go to greenbiz.com slash webcast. You'll see the listing for that. And I hope you sign up. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. Seven of them. We come out every business day of the week and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, and tips. Just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather will be off next week, but I'll be back diving in with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. 